Germany's social market economy combined free markets with a strong welfare state. It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tank's podcast, The Centrist Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Penelope Hope. Penelope is the co-founder and non-executive director of Rebel Energy, an energy supplier with a mission to end fuel poverty. Since founding Rebel, she's established her own consultancy, Patterson Hope, specialising in leadership, strategy and sustainability. She read classics at UCL and recently graduated from the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership. She's passionate about the way in which society and the environment intersect, a passion which she now uses to inspire change as a speaker, board advisor and corporate consultant. Welcome to the podcast, Penelope. Thank you, Will. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on. Now, the first question um, that I would like to ask is... Are there any ways that the um, government could help businesses to move towards renewable production and consumption? Well, thanks for that question, Will. I think there are many ways that the government could move toward renewable production and consumption. But if we are to have any hope of strategies taking root, then what we really need is the fertile ground of leadership, which is open to the possibility of a renewable future. In order for that to happen, I believe we need the kind of leadership whereby leaders are able to set out a long-term vision based on their beliefs and their values, which would require us to agree on what our beliefs and values are in respect of renewable energy. It's my belief, Will, that net zero is not enough. The reason I believe net zero is not enough is because net zero essentially says that we can continue to emit harmful gases into our atmosphere and that we will endeavor to reduce, redact or sequester those gases through carbon reduction mechanisms, carbon capture and sequestration projects such as reforesting, rewilding, seagrass, peat bogs, all of those good biodiversity goals. But all the while those harmful gases are sitting in the atmosphere until such time as they can be sequestered, they are continuing to damage our atmosphere. They're increasing the hole in the ozone layer. They are warming our planetary temperatures. And we're not actually getting the result that we need to secure our future, both for people, wildlife and planet. So the first thing I think we need to do based on our beliefs and values, is set out a long-term vision for a total renewable future. If we have that vision in place, then it's very easy to unpack a set of strategies and tactics off the back of that, which line up with that vision, such as a big investment in renewable generation production that's empowering UK entrepreneurs to set up UK generation power plants selling into the UK grid. I think we need a big investment in research, R&D tax credits for companies who want to innovate and explore very exciting new renewable technologies such as raindrop energy, which is currently being um, researched at the University of Hong Kong. That could be a huge benefit for the UK given how much rainfall we get. I think with our corporate sector, we're going to need what I would call a carrot and a stick strategy. 
So on the one hand, we say, if you can commit to a total renewable future by such and such a date, 2030, 2035, we will give you tax breaks up until the point that you have completed that transition. The stick would be, if you don't complete that transition, we will revoke or reduce your license to operate because our belief is that we need to go beyond net zero. So you can see how that pans out for oil companies, for car companies, that would be migrating to only selling electric vehicles, phasing out naturally aspirated engines. It can sound a little bit radical, but when it's factored off of that long-term vision based on beliefs and values, it makes sense. And the thing to keep in mind, Will, mm. is these business models are going to become obsolete anyway. The pace of innovation is outstripping the old way of thinking, that business models will become obsolete. So this is about stimulating that natural transition which is happening um, with the strategies and tactics based off the long-term goal. Mm -hmm. uh, historically, um, how forward-thinking do you think British governments have been to understand the need to shift um, from the current model that we have, the current relationship between the renewable sector and the, the government? And, and do you think that perhaps, regardless of, of party, the government has been, the British government has been slower than other comparable governments or, or, or more forward thinking? What are your thoughts? They've been woefully slow, um, which is why we have the energy crisis that we have at the moment. Um, crises come about because there is a catalyst to an already problematic situation. The catalyst in this uh, equation, of course, has been Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But what we are lacking is uh, a 10-year forward plan, which should have begun 10 years ago, um, whereby we could massively increase our expenditure and our investment, as I've mentioned, in renewable production and starting to shift our thinking. So that's why I, that's why I keep talking about leadership. It's so important that our leaders have the right beliefs and values and are able to pinpoint a long-term vision and then operationally execute against that vision to deliver the change that we need. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, in terms of the government's plans to to subsidise energy bills, um, which of course have changed somewhat um, recently in terms of how um they will the, the length of them and how they will be exactly enacted is it the right way to go do you think or are there any better options that you would personally support and you think would be better uh for both the public and for the the, the government's understanding of the renewable sector yeah, that's a great question. Um, it really upsets me, Will, that we've come to the point whereby we have to resort to these short-term measures. The, the measures that we have from government are, ideologically speaking, the equivalent of issuing the poor with coupons to pay for what is um, an essential utility need. Um, that is wrong because it deprives the populace of the empowerment that they should naturally feel from paying their taxes, even if that's a very small amount of tax for low-income households. Paying taxes basically says, I enter into, I engage with my national life. Um, I, I'm paying towards my schools and uh, new homes being built and hospitals and roads. 
to be issued coupons completely robs the electorate of their empowerment and, and it upsets me very much. The real question then is, how do we make energy cheaper over the long term? And in order to answer that question, we have to go right back down the value chain. We have to start with increasing massively our investment in renewable energy supply. We need to get more generation, renewable generation plants coming online. The second thing we need to do as we move up the value chain, once that energy is generated, it then needs to be sold in the wholesale markets. Again, the reason why we have the crisis at the moment is because we are beholden to fluctuations in uh, wider energy wholesale markets over which we have no control. What I think could be an interesting solution would be to have a, an internal UK wholesale market whereby UK generators can trade with UK suppliers. So we have that extra level of security should something go wrong at an international level. The third thing I think we need moving from the generation to the wholesale markets is to nationalize the network. So our national grid, which are those um, unsightly pylons that we see when we're driving down the motorway, is owned, unfortunately, by the National Grid Group, PLC. That's a listed investable company. And if you drill down into some of their shareholders, you'll find that they have American investment firms as shareholders. They have Qatari investment firms as shareholders. Of course, those people, their interests are going to be misaligned with that of the UK household, the UK consumer. If we were to bring the network back into public ownership, then we would be setting out on this road of energy security, economic security, pointing toward that long-term goal of a total renewable future. And all of those measures coming right from the back end of the value chain would contribute to making it cheaper for the consumer think that there's more that the large energy companies themselves can do with, without direct um, government intervention to reduce prices or do you think that you support consumers um, during this time of, of large-scale price increases receiving more support from energy companies maybe not necessarily in the reduction of, of prices but perhaps better advice from them about using their energy. I mean, there was um, a plan uh, that the business uh, secretary was planning to roll out at a nationwide plan in terms of, of, of how uh, expressing how um, people can, can save money um, from the energy companies. But of course, that, that plan wasn't rolled out. Do you think there's something that the energy companies can do themselves in terms of information distribution? Or, or would you favour more uh, than doing something just in terms of reducing prices? The wonderful thing about an energy supplier is that the energy supplier owns the relationship with the consumer. So, of course, the consumer's natural inclination is to go to the energy supplier in respect of their energy needs. And energy education, energy literacy is part of a consumer's energy needs. So at my company, Rebel Energy, we've just rolled out a new app whereby people can manage their usage, their, their consumption, they can better understand the costs that they're paying for each of those things. 
And that is something that we can uniquely do because, of course, consumers are going to be turning to us if they are a customer of our company. So education is absolutely something that energy suppliers can, should be doing and ramping up their efforts to help people understand how to manage their energy better. Another thing that energy suppliers can be doing is looking internally to manage their own cost bases more efficiently, because, of course, the better one runs one's own business, the more one can reduce the price for one's potential customers. The strategy we took at Rebel was very interesting. We've employed a lot of artificial intelligence strategies, robotic process automation. That means that we're taking a lot of the manual work away from our staff at call centers so they have more time to spend with customers on the, on the phone, which is essential at a time like this when people have more and more questions and more anxiety about the security of their energy supply. What is a, a blessing to us in respect of us having that relationship can also sometimes be a curse, of course. Those calls, very distressed calls from customers that we might have only received once a week, uh, energy suppliers are now seeing multiple times a day. Call centre staff are exhausted and they're being asked to deal with a variety of requests for which they're not truly equipped. Um, the energy supplier is unfortunately becoming like a second citizen's advice bureau. And again, that just shows you the pressure that has been put on the system by lack of forward thinking, mm. lack of planning over the years in respect of our energy. Mm. I think suppliers also can gather together to lobby government. This is a time when we really need collaboration amongst the suppliers to put pressure on government to implement some of the um, tactics that I've suggested all the way down the value chain to stabilize the cost for consumers and get a grip on our economy. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of um, using artificial intelligence, which you, you mentioned there, um, how uh, effective did you did you find um, the changeover from when you had previously um, not used AI to to using AI? Was it was it a, a, a smooth transition? Did you find? We were very fortunate, Will, in that we set up our company from the get go mm -hmm. using AI. Mm -hmm. um, but I can tell you that um, professionals in our company who've been in the industry for decades said that when we set up these automated processes, they could see that some processes such as the onboarding process, for instance, think of all the back-end interactions that have to happen in order to bring a customer on board yeah. an energy supplier. Um, what might have taken days at one of the incumbent suppliers took 20 minutes with us because of these processes that we designed. So that's phenomenal because every money, every bit of money that we can save is money that we can flow back to the consumer, number one, or reinvest in our business so that we are better equipped to educate, supply our customers in respect to their energy needs. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, I'd like to turn now to um, groups that have expressed opposition to renewable energy because there are, there are sectors of society that for whatever reason whether it be um support for um gas and that they have perhaps investments in those companies or that simply because that they're used to using uh, oil and gas rather than renewable energies that, that there are quite certain sizable chunks of the population that do have some uh disagreement with renewable energy whether it be building um, wind onshore wind farms near where they live, or as, as I say, because they have investment in, in, in some of the uh, oil and gas companies. Why do you think that there are 
groups that are opposed to renewable energies? Do you think it's simply a case of that there are certain sectors of the population that are, you know, uh, overly nimbyish towards um, new renewable energy um, infrastructures being near their homes because of property prices and things like that? Or do you think it's just a, a lack of understanding of how important they are for our future? Well, I had a week's holiday in Norfolk this summer and I visited a friend um, who lives in a tiny village. And she said that recently a large American corporation had come in to make a bid for the surrounding land. And their um, intention was to build the largest solar farm in the UK. And the batteries that would be required to harness the energy from such a solar farm would be of such a scale um, that is actually untested. Mm. Um, and there has been evidence to suggest that these batteries actually can catch fire, that mm. they're a fire risk. It's no surprise to me that that was hugely worrisome for the local mm. residents. Um, and while I very much believe that we need to massively increase our renewable energy production, the way we do it is essential. It's about the approach. There's a writer who I think is very interesting called Margaret J. Wheatley. And she talks, she uses an analogy of a farmer and an engineer. Engineer type thinking is um, results driven um, with a, you know, with a big outcome that needs to be produced. It's very orderly. It, it's the big American corporation mm. coming in to industrialize the local farmland, regardless mm. of um, anyone's wishes or needs. Mm. In contrast to the engineer is the farmer. The farmer looks to build relationships with local stakeholders. The farmer is looking at what are the existing trends in this community that I can harness. The farmer is looking for ways to organically and incrementally grow. They can get to the same destination, but they're just going about it a very different way. So let's run that same scenario for that small village in Norfolk. Had that been a UK company coming along to say, we would like to partner with you to produce a local energy generation plant. We'll start with one field at a time. We're going to look at ways to integrate what we're doing with local biodiversity and wildlife projects. We'd like to run a program for your local school whereby your children can visit so they can learn about renewable energy. We want to employ local people. This is the kind of community integration, the farmer's approach that is needed if we want to roll out a big renewable generation scheme. We've got to enlist local people to the task, make them feel at ease, respected and included. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think you're right to focus on that need for balance because it's, it's something that um, comes up time and time again in, in in regards to both not only um renewable energy but also rewilding projects we recently hosted uh, a, a rewilding event at center and one of the great questions that came out of it that was perhaps only partly answered was the degree to which we can balance the need for sustaining uh biodiversity in particular parts of, of the uk and reintroducing species that have been lost with a natural need for economic growth and also for building um, houses and, and, and other things and being able to find that um, perfect point 
uh, that is a, is, is a um, unique balance between the two. Um, do you think that there is any way in which the government can set a target on this? Because as, as, as you say, you, you'd prefer to take a, a, a more organic, a, a more of a farmer's approach. But if that's the case, how could you set particular targets if you're not sure which parts of the country you want to uh, extend renewable energies in because you're having to work on a more localised basis? I think that it needs to be nationwide, to be very clear about that. I think we are uniquely positioned as an island. We have hundreds of miles of coastline, which means we have a massive opportunity for offshore wind and for tidal. Tidal is really not being made use of at the moment, nor is wave energy. Um, coupled with solar that we have on land, we have more than enough to fulfill both our energy needs and our agricultural needs for that matter. Um, in terms of the methodology of delivering the goal, I think we need to set, uh, we do need to set a target and set it in stone, a, a timeline. Mm -hmm. um, if we set a target of 2050, we might make it there by 2060. Mm -hmm. If we set a target of 2030, we might make it by 2035. Mm -hmm. So I think we do have to be ambitious. The approach, however, the, the way that we get there needs to be starting within our local communities. It, it needs to be taking this organic and pragmatic approach, which builds relationships with local stakeholders so that people don't feel usurped and um, unincluded in the conversation by much larger corporates against whom they have absolutely no hope of um, expressing their wishes. Um, and what makes it worse is when those corporates are foreign, because it's just so evidently clear that they are not invested in benefiting the communities. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, 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 that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. And in, in my um, previous question just now, I mentioned houses and, and, and building houses. And how do you think we can, I mean, you may have partly answered this with your response to um, uh, the, the question I just asked. How do we ensure that 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 balance in terms of building uh, more houses, but also having a, a, um, a, a better source of sustainable energy? And, and how can we actually use the building of houses to generate renewable energy? And house building is an integral part of our journey toward a total renewable future. And um, what we're seeing, of course, is the shift um, from us being energy consumers will to our households being energy prosumers. So that is where every household has its own solar panels on the roof, potentially a turbine in the garden, an electric vehicle on the front lawn, which we know acts essentially as a giant battery. Um, we've got to think about heat pumps, electric boilers. We've got to think about energy efficient devices and appliances in the home. Does everyone have an induction cooker or are some people still using gas? It's an essential part of that journey. And it's another area where if we can succeed in rolling this out with good operational leadership, each individual household can become energy self-sufficient in and of themselves. And we also alongside that need to make sure that some of uh, our populace who are living in council homes or housing association homes, that they come on that journey as well. The government needs to partner with those local councils to make sure that they have money in their budget um, so that low-income households, social housing can also be tooled and equipped so that everybody comes on the energy transition together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Um, just turning now to um, REGOs and, and, and REGO certificates, they show that energy comes from a renewable source, yet they don't increase the amount of renewable energy on the grid as you're simply buying existing energy supplies. How are power purchase agreements different from them? Yeah. Well, let's just take that REGO piece first so that we're, we're on the same page. A REGO stands for a Renewable Energy Generation Certificate of Origin. And what that certificate does is that it is issued against a megawatt hour of electricity emanating from a renewable source. But what has been unfortunately allowed to happen in a process that the industry refers to as unbundling is that the certificate can be decoupled from its underlying megawatt hour of renewable generation, and then it can be traded. So if we take a working example, I could be an energy supplier with a fixed term contract to supply you, Will, for a year's worth of your energy needs. And I could source your energy using the money that you have paid me from the wholesale markets, buying from brownfield sites, coal, oil, gas, and at the end of the year, I could purchase a commensurate number of Rego certificates against the energy that I've supplied you. And I could tell you that you've been on a green tariff. It's duplicitous. It's wrong. Um, and it's it's creating it's completely depleting any trust that there was in, in the energy sector. The, the thing also to remember is that only a very small fraction of the amount paid for the Rego certificate actually makes its way back to the renewable energy generation power plant. So, so it completely fails to stimulate the growth and the investment that these generation plants desperately need to increase their supply. Power purchase agreements, or PPAs for short, are different. That is a direct contract between an energy supplier and a specific renewable generation plant. They come together, they negotiate a contract, they agree the length, the terms, the price. And it means that the supplier can then offer the consumer what is known as traceability. Will, I can guarantee you that the money you've given me has been spent at such and such a solar farm in Norfolk. And that is wonderful. It, it creates transparency, it builds trust, and it's helping to increase uh, the renewable generation economy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's it's also important as um, well that people are, are, are not only aware of these uh, distinctions, but also are aware of, as, as you say, the, the certain amount of um, duplicity that is that is, in, that is involved with um, the certificates as, as they stand. Do, do you think this is something that a, a great many people are actually aware of at the moment in, in the general populace? No, of course not. I, I think even if you work in the energy sector, some of these concepts can be quite opaque. Mm -hmm. um, again, it is the responsibility, I believe, of a renewable energy supplier to educate customers. Um, you know, of course, some of the big suppliers are not going to be incentivized to provide this kind of education because it doesn't work in their favor. Um, so we're relying on the, the small suppliers to carry the weight of that. Um, and we need um, integrity of journalism. Um, we need integrity in our media, our TV companies to 
um, make sure that this message gets across and, and help people to wake up in respect of where their money is going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I'd just like to now turn to how businesses, both large and small, can balance making a profit with ensuring that they support their employees and create a positive impact. How how best do you think that they can do that in, in, in terms of um, their energy consumption, particularly if, the, if they want to use um, renewable energy? I am asked this question often um, in my capacity as a consultant, and I find it quite a strange one because for me, all efforts that are made to increase a company's impact or money that is spent on increasing impact has a self-reflexive benefit. It, it comes back to the business in the form of trade. Um, with Rebel is a great example. We set out with a vision that we wanted to alleviate fuel poverty. And we orchestrated everything about our company to hinge off that long-term goal. Um, It filtered through to our hiring policy. We would interview people on the basis of their beliefs and their values. Um, It filtered through to our branding and our messaging, our marketing strategy. We constantly would talk about um, the problems that fuel poverty was creating for people. And it helped us also in respect of our capital raising needs. We attracted the most wonderful kinds of investors who are with our company for the long term because they too believe what we believe. It makes it very easy to do business when you have a clear vision set out. That's what leadership's all about. So then let's take a look at how that leadership methodology has benefited us in the last 12 months. There's been the biggest price shock to wholesale markets that we've seen ever in the energy markets. So many small suppliers have fallen by the wayside. They've gone under for a variety of reasons, but our little company is still going strong. Not only has that leadership methodology protected us from a a period of market volatility, it's actually enabled us to grow and to scale um, when prices are high. Um, Leading with impact is what will secure your business. It will increase your profits. It's the, and, and I'm not talking about um, impact for impact's sake, you know, which is where we get greenwashing from. I'm talking about having a true belief in what you're doing and having those beliefs um, emanate and infiltrate the entirety of your leadership methodology within your business and without. Um, in, in in regards to, to leadership, we've been discussing um, government leadership, leadership uh, in businesses and energy has become so central to leadership, particularly over the past few months with the rising cost of it. Do you think that the government are adequately equipped to govern on this topic? Well, in short, Will, no, I don't. Um, And that's not necessarily a problem if we had a better system of leadership. Mm. So what we're lacking at the moment in government is real sector expertise. Um, When I look at the setup of government, we've got the PM at the top, we've got the chancellor um, next door. I think we have to put put new solutions on the table in respect of our energy governance, Mm. right? So we could set up, for instance, a Chancellor of Energy in which you would have a sort of a triangular structure, PM at the top, Chancellor Exchequer on one side, Chancellor of Energy on the other side. 
they need a little bit more jurisdiction and room to operate and and to um to to get results Mm. they need to have a serious pedigree of time spent in industry it's essential this is so complex Mm. and our economy is so reliant on the security of our energy needs we can't afford to get it wrong another way to do it potentially could be um setting up an energy committee an, an operational energy committee to operationalize this energy transition um we had that we had the committee to deliver the london olympics mm-hmm. and that got a lot of bad press at the time but it was highly effective we had a fantastic olympics it was a great result for us um so it it doesn't matter if the prime minister themselves is an energy expert or not what matters or MPs necessarily for that matter. What matters is that we have some kind of office, a special office for energy leadership, um, which is meritocratically, um, people are meritocratically hired into those roles um, so that we have a grip on uh, energy management in this country. We need a different form of governance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Well, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been it's been great to speak to you, um, Penelope. And I have one final question. Viewing this energy crisis in the perspective of the last 70 odd years of uh, post-war politics, how do you feel about the future? Well, I am a sceptical optimist. Um, what do I mean by that? I think we've got a, a couple of issues. The first issue is that we are lacking integrity in leadership, in our government leadership. I think that we need to start asking tougher questions about the kind of people that we are allowing to govern us. We need to agree, again, a set of beliefs and values for what qualifies a leader. Well, I believe that the only quality that can qualify a leader is humility. In order to screen for humility, we need to look beyond just a person's political rhetoric. We need to look at their track record. We need to look at how they have governed and stewarded themselves in respect of their personal affairs. These are really important issues. As we do with one thing, so we do with all things. I think that's the first thing we have to do. We need to take a look, secondly, at our media landscape. Regardless of the leaders that we've had in power over the last however many decades, the media is sensationalist, um, which doesn't help cultivate the kind of intellectual debate that is necessary to bring about the right outcomes. Um, We need to also make sure that the right things are being reported. I can think of quite a few marches um, that have happened recently in London about oil companies, for instance, which simply have not made it to the news. That's really worrying in 2022 in a Western society, a Western democracy. So integrity of leadership, integrity of the media landscape, we need to take a thorough look at those pieces. In terms of building on those two parts for our future, I think of Winston Churchill when he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. That's really important for us now. If we get this energy transition right, 
leveraging off the back of the huge volatility and the crisis that we've seen in the energy markets, leveraging off the back of the chaos that Brexit has created administratively for our country, the, the fuel poverty crisis, the cost of living crisis. This is an opportunity to get it right. To get it right, we have to look rigorously at the issues that we're facing. We need to set a long-term goal based on a set of agreed beliefs and values. We can maximize this crisis to our advantage. We can rebuild our society, our economy, our energy networks for enormous economic renewal if we bring the housing aspect, the wholesale price aspect, the international aspect under control. I think this is our moment to secure our energy future for the long term, but we'll, we need the right kind of leadership to do it. Absolutely. Well, thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Penelope. If people want to find out more about you, um, where should they go on, on, on Twitter or, or if you've got a website to, to find out more about you? I am on LinkedIn, Will, and I welcome all approaches. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.